Hey everyone, welcome to episode two of Truck Safe Live, the monthly live streamed show where we and our guest try and tackle the hot button issues impacting highway transportation. I'm Brandon, this is Jared, we're with Truck Safe Consulting and Childress Law, both of which are dedicated to helping motor carriers develop and maintain compliant and cutting edge safety programs. Yeah, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome again. Uh, before we get started rolling here, I wanted to say a quick thanks to the sponsor of the episode, which is Argos Connected Solutions, A-R-G-O-S Connected Solutions. Argos is an authorized geotab reseller specializing in fleet management tools, including ELDs, telematics, dash cams, trailer tracking, way station bypass, and many other transportation technology solutions. Um, Argos is focused on connecting commercial vehicles to the internet and providing web-based analytics to help customers better manage their fleets under one single platform. These guys are so great to work with. Check them out. If you need help implementing ELDs or other telematics devices, be sure to give them a call or check them out at their website, which is www.argosconnected.com. Yeah, thanks to Argos for sponsoring this episode. And, uh, you know, today's topic is drinking from a fire hose. And obviously, the uh, we're invoking an image there and trying, as a metaphor, to try and give you a sense of what it's like to be a motor carrier with all of this data coming at you and and uh, kind of releasing the floodgate and, and trying to manage, um, you know, terabytes, literally terabytes of data um, from all of these different connected devices that are that are becoming more commonplace in commercial motor vehicles as we progress on uh, with the technology. And so that's what we wanted to hit on today. You know, our first episode last month was all about nuclear verdicts and, um, you know, what, what contributes to those and, and how motor carriers get themselves into trouble and end up in those situations to begin with. And in fact, just yesterday, I think it was, Jared, we saw uh, news about the large largest uh, nuclear verdict in the industry to date uh, in Florida. There was a billion dollar jury verdict uh, with a B, with a B uh, issued <laughs> against a, a couple of trucking companies. And so, you know, these things aren't going away. And so, you know, with that in mind, as Steve Bryan said in our last show, carriers need to be taking a close and hard look at what are the attack vectors that they have that is making them susceptible to these types of verdicts. And I think, uh, I know we think, Jared, we've seen this in our own practice and working with motor carriers over the years. One of the big attack vectors is this idea of big data and having all of this information available to motor carriers and then not being able to effectively manage the data. Um, You know, we don't have to look back too far to, to remember the days when trucking was largely paper-based. I mean, we, we were dealing with paper records of duty status, paper vehicle inspection reports, uh, trip sheets that had to be mailed, literally mailed to the carriers uh, each week or, or whatever frequency. And so obviously that had its own unique set of problems uh, dealing with all the, the paper, but this is just a, a completely different game with, you know, whether we're talking about ELDs or GPS or, you know, forward or inward facing cameras, event diagnostics, tire pressure monitoring, the list goes on and on. All 
all of these things are just tracking um, data points throughout the day, um, sometimes multiple times a minute, um, and then transmitting that over to the carrier. And so it's become a real problem for a lot of our clients, I know, with how do we manage this data and what do we do with it? Yeah, I mean, certainly if you look at a recent or the next nuclear verdict, I'd challenge you to, to try to find one that doesn't involve some type of telematics. I mean, uh, like you mentioned, there's so many data points that are being collected on the commercial motor vehicles now, uh, not just ELDs. I mean, you mentioned a lot of different types of telematics, and ELDs are certainly the most common form of telematics that most motor carriers deal with on a daily basis. But... There's a lot of others. I mean, cameras are becoming more and more popular, um, you know, because oftentimes they will actually benefit the motor carrier in the context of, of an accident. I mean, by making liability clear and saying we need to settle this case or saying liability is clear on the other side and we need to litigate this and push this. Um, or it could just stop the lawsuit from happening altogether, which is ideal. But um, kind of in terms of this show and the way that I think of telematics, I mentioned how common the ELDs are for these motor carriers. I mean, and today we're gonna kind of separate ELDs into their own little telematics bucket and then other telematics uh, options at large, like cameras, uh, event diagnostics that come from trucks, things like that. And then one step further, I mean, we kind of have two different buckets of data that's being generated by the telematics. We have vehicle generated uh, data points, so like your data diagnostics um, and things like that. And then you also have your driver behavior generated telematics, such as uh, the, the coaching points, like the, the hard braking events, the speeding, unsafe acceleration, things like that. And then with the ELDs, a lot of things are just automatically captured. Uh, but you mentioned one thing that really resonated, and, and that is um, dealing with the data. I mean, more data is not always better. Um, and, and in the context of those attack vectors for plaintiff's attorneys, I mean, we're looking at large amounts of data that's being collected. And, and you know, uh, me and Brandon have just done a couple of mock audits recently in the last 30 days or so. And, and it involved telematics uh, options that were collecting data that the motor carrier was not aware of, not policing actively. And, and, and at times there's even reports uh, that, that will rank drivers from zero to 100. I mean, we, we sometimes observe drivers that have a score of zero, which <laughs> is not good. Uh, 100 is the best, zero is the worst. And, and uh, it'll, it'll say on the coaching report, driver not coached ever. So, I mean, those are the types of things that may be being captured in the background that you have to be aware of and, and turning off data or limiting data um, strategically is something to definitely look at. Yeah, I think the scary thing is, you know, a lot of carriers in our experience are accumulating this type of data that's clearly showing problem areas for specific drivers, and they don't even know that they're accumulating that data and that those reports are available. And so you can just imagine how that's going to play out if that carrier gets involved in a catastrophic accident, right? So the first thing that plaintiff's attorney is going to request is all of that type of data. And when that gets turned over, there's just going to be these reports that say, hey, driver John Doe had 
25 harsh breaking events in in October of last year and guess what happened uh you know it, you know the accident was caused in part by his harsh breaking you didn't you know you're going to have to explain to the jury why it was that you had access to that data you knew that John Doe was having problems with this issue and you didn't take any action uh, to deal with it so that's a real problem i think um, in the context of of highway accident litigation and and you know, that's one, that's the big problem. Um, I think another problem is just a lot of carriers don't have the resources to even manage the data. Even if they knew that these reports were out there, even if they know that they're gathering this data, you know, they may just have, you know, one safety director or a team, a small team of safety managers, you know, and when we're talking about hundreds or thousands of data points per driver per day. And you're talking about a team of one or two or three people trying to, you know, not only just look at the data that's coming in, but also then act on it. it it's just in our experience, it's, it's tough for them to deal with. And I mean, as, as we know, with most of these motor carriers that we've worked with that are, that are not the thousand plus uh, fleets, you know, most of these safety managers wear more than one hat. So they're probably onboarding drivers. They're probably, functioning as HR, doing all kinds of different things. So these safety managers wear a lot of different hats. So to toss one more item that's not necessarily a regulatory requirement on top of them, um, that, that could be very overwhelming. So ignoring that data is, is not an option in my opinion, uh, but paring it down should be something that should be discussed at the uh, management levels. Yeah, exactly. Todd says, or worse, you didn't know about the heartbreaking and you should have known. That's exactly right. Um, you know, you're going to be held to your own standard when you get before a jury. I mean, they're going to be looking at all of the information that was available to you and saying, why didn't you use the data that was readily available to you? And that's just going to cause a lot of a lot of headaches. So figuring out a way to manage this data is kind of obviously the the topic of this show. And, and I think we recognized early on, Jared, that and you kind of mentioned that Electronic logging devices and, and camera systems are probably the the two biggest um, uh, contributors to the problem in, in, in the sense of the overwhelming amount of data that they have the potential of capturing and sending over to the motor carrier. So we kind of wanted to focus on those, and I think it makes sense to probably start with ELDs, given that they are now mandated for most operations in the country. Yeah, for sure. Um, and kind of with that, let's go ahead and welcome our first guest. Uh, guest. We're happy to have Tom Cuthbertson on the show today. Um, if you want to see Tom's full uh, bio, check out the Truck Safe Live website for his bio there. Um, I'm sure many of you have interacted with Tom over the years through Tom's work at Omnitrax or at industry events like CVSA or State Trucking Association meetings. Um, those of you that know Tom know that he's been in the transportation industry for a very long time and has contributed to safety and compliance in the world of telematics and ELDs in particular, more than pretty much anyone else I know. Um, Tom's an expert in all things telematics. Um, he spends a ton of his times um, in ELD compliance with ELD manufacturers and ELD motor, carrier, uh, motor carriers compliance. Um, I invited Tom to be on the show so we could talk about practical ELD issues that impact motor carriers. And that's where we'll try to focus our discussion. So I know you all have burning questions on ELD, so please post a question and we will tackle it here on the show if we can. Uh, Tom's fairly recently retired from heading up regulatory affairs at Omnitrax, and he's now doing consulting work and playing a fair amount of golf in between his <laughs> projects. So Tom, welcome to the show. <laughs> 
Thanks for having me. I, I just hope I can help. Let's clear up some of the mud that some people get into here, you know. Oh, that's that's you're the best at that clearing up the mud, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you up to these days, Tom? What keeps you busy on a typical week? Well, you know, some volunteer work, uh, you know, and some of this consulting. And I think the biggest topics that I'm getting right now on people are, you know, a lot of concerns about the Canadian regulation and the certification process. And, you know, people are starting to read the tests and they're, well, why are they testing that when it might not be in the regulation, but now they're testing for it. So uh, most of the questions I'm getting are centered around uh, the Canada, but I'm getting some periodic questions back uh, uh, on some of the exemptions that were granted on the U.S. ELDs. Uh, hmm. You know, so, some of the issues there that seem to come up are people still don't understand uh, the exemption that was given, but to all carriers about, you know, yard move terminations, uh, the use of GPS for geofencing in those yard moves, those kind of things. And uh, I don't think people have spent enough time, uh, suppliers or carriers, understanding uh, quite a few of the FAQs that FMCSA posted that put clarification in. And I think to help carriers out. Yeah, so you mentioned geofencing. Can you kind of just talk about geofencing and, and the concept of how a carrier would use that? What types of vendors are doing geofencing? Just kind of roll that issue out for us. Well, when, when that came out, you know, the, I mean, geofencing can be basically used and the, the, the core of it was to use it for geofencing your yard. Because when, when the yard move came out, you know, I think it's a big benefit to carriers, but definitely a benefit to the drivers so they're not sucking up drive time that they don't have to, right? So, but the problem was when it first came out, it was completely manual. So what happened was driver, you know, it's a nervous Nelly time because I got to get on my load. I got to get out of the yard. I go through the gate. I had myself in yard move. I forget to put myself out of yard move. And now I'm 40 minutes down the road and I'm still in a yard move on duty. So what I think the exemption, and I, I was, I think it was good that FMCSA granted it to everybody. They said you could terminate your yard move at 20 miles per hour, right? Or a geofence. So if you geofence your yards properly, and there's there's tools out there that people can use to establish those geofences, and a lot of the suppliers put that function and feature in. I would say the bigger suppliers that had the ability to do that, so that now you could terminate your yard move by crossing a geofence. I think the mistake that comes up periodically is somebody thinks you can go into a, a yard move when you cross into the geofence, and that's not allowed because that becomes an automatic duty status change that's not allowed in the regulation because you're going from a drive segment to an on-duty segment automatically, and that's not allowed. You're, you're, so you're instead, Go ahead. In, instead of that auto-duty status change, you'd get a little prompt that says, do you want to enter yard moves or do you want to exit yard moves, right? That's well, the proper you, way. You can do it that way. There's, yeah. You know, all this stuff that people want to do automatic, they have to remember there's only two automatic duty statuses, drive, and after the five minute timer, when maybe you're stuck in traffic or a work zone that lets you go to on duty, right? Everything yep. else has to be requested from the driver. So if you have a payroll system and you want the driver to go on duty because of the payroll system or something or an edit, you have to ask the driver, do you want to go into that status? So if you 
to have a geofence and you jump into the yard, you can flash a message up to the driver. Do you want to put yourself in the yard and move yes or no? Then the driver has control, right? Then you're, you're yep. compliant with regulation. You can do it that way. Yep, that's great. I, I remember early on in the ELD mandate, I'd be looking at um, different ELD vendors devices and then working with fleets on ELD compliance. And, and I would I would often ask about geofencing and it seemed like almost none of the vendors early on were taking no. that on. But now no. at this point, it seems like a lot more ELD vendors are offering geofencing. What kind of percentage would you say of, of the ELDs that are out there, manufacturers are doing geofencing? Uh, you know, you, you got to look at really the bigger guys, okay? The ones that have been around for a while and have the volume because a lot of them had some type of GPS geofence type of tool within the products, a full telematics mm -hmm. products, because it's outside the realm of an ELD. You're entering into the telematics world, right? Now, you can make your own geofences, right? But it takes a lot. And then you have to worry about the integration so that it's working correctly with the ELD. So I'd I, I venture to say when we had, what, 400 and some devices registered, I, I, would, I would think only about 20 to 25% of them possibly have that implemented. And when you think that this came out, right, in October before the regulation went live, and where are we now? 2021? Right? Mm -hmm. Tom, somebody was asking what locations can be considered a yard for purposes of that? Well, it's, it's private access, right? So they came out with more clarification and guidance. People thought, oh, a truck truck stops a yard. Nope. Right? And, you know, there, I've heard of things with the ports. Oh, we're automatically going to do it. No, can't do that. you got to ask the driver. Right? So... If as long as it's private access, right? It could even be an oil field because most oil fields have their own gates. They have their own security, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, ports have their own gates, their own security. You don't get in the truck yard, the shipper yard, right? That's private. Most, most of the shippers have their own security to go through the gate, right? It's not anything that is not public access. Yeah, and, and up in Alaska, I've actually seen that with those oil fields, they'll have the gated access and the oil field roads will just go on and on and on and right. running in yard moves for that long because it's not public, it's private. Um, and, and, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I wanted to kind of move us into a different kind of area of compliance related to the FMCSA's work in kind of policing vendors. I mean, we had hoped all along that this self-certification system would yield some kind of enforcement arm from the FMCSA. Are we seeing that now? Any kind of enforcement efforts from the FMCSA and how are they doing that? Yeah, I, I've seen them. I've seen that happen. Uh, uh, I've, I've had to give some answers on certain things, but what they're starting to do is, uh, and suppliers need to be aware of that, they're looking at the EROD transfers. So if they start seeing errors on EROD transfer and it's, and it's too frequent and it's, and it's critical data within EROD transfer because they put a report out for each supplier to review to see if their EROD transfers are working effectively. If they see that starting to not work, okay, they're going to they're gonna pull, it, pull it and you're going to have some letters and you're going to have to explain it. I think what else I've seen happening is they were, I've had interaction with this myself, you know, several years ago, but what they also do, 
it, people can can put a complaint into the ELD tech email. If they don't mm -hmm. like what they're seeing or enforcement has a whole clearinghouse, because we've seen questions go in that enforcement's at roadside and says, this thing is not working right. Not that that's their job. Their job is to audit hours of service. But if they see something that's blatant, they may mention it. And an FMC follows up on those and they'll, and they'll contact the supplier and say, you know, here's what I have. You need to respond to me and let me know if you're compliant or not, or you need to go fix something. I mean, and they have the notification and built into the regulation about the 30 days that you have to get going on it. You have to get it repaired. You got to give them status reports. I've seen suppliers go through arduous weekly meetings because there was too many EROD fails, EROD transfer fails, whether it was email or the web services, right? And and continue to to monitor them. So they don't once they get a clear, they don't stop monitoring that supplier that I've seen. They'll come back a month later and look at it. If everything's okay, then you don't have any notifications. If they start seeing some trending issues, they're going to go back to that supplier. So I've seen that probably oh at least five or six times. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing here, um, different, you mentioned the Canadian ELD mandate earlier. Um, the U.S. side, we have the self-certification process for becoming an approved ELD. And the Canadian side, we have required third-party testing. Um, how many uh, approved third-party testing bodies do we have at this point, and how's that there's, going? There's three right now. Um, okay. And... Um, uh, there's some suppliers that are starting to work with uh, one of the newer ones. Um, I know some of the suppliers are concerned on some of the certification tests. So they're having interaction with this, with the, the groups that are doing a certification to get clarifications. But I think most of what's happening is it's gone back. Well, the test is written. I have to follow the test procedure and go there. So I think there's going to be some bumps in the road. Um, I don't know that they're going to be, um, detrimental, it's going to slow the process down. And I think if you look at what's happened in Canada, they did a year of soft enforcement, you know, just prior to the June 12th date. So, but what I would suggest to people is don't, don't fall asleep. Just because you think there's a year, it's that year is going to disappear instantaneously. So people need to keep on top of this and they need to keep working towards that certification process because Canada is not going to back off a certification. Yeah. Hey, Tom, we're talking about, um, you know, manufacturer, ELD manufacturers. And I know, at least in my experience, uh, you all have more, much more experience in the ELD realm than I do. But it seems like there are ELD providers out there, at least in the U.S., who are focused pretty much exclusively on meeting the requirements of the regulations. They they write their program. They, they, they manufacture their device strictly to comply with the technical specifications. But then right. you have other manufacturers out there who offer a bunch of, you know, add-on functionality, other types of reports that maybe not uh, required by the regulations. Are, can you give us a feel for what the kind of, you know, range of options sure. are available sure. and give us a sense sure. of what we're talking about in terms of the back office one, reports? I think one big one is, it, first, it's not a regulation, but some of the bigger suppliers have had these before, and they're called odometer jump reports. They basically take a look at the system, and I think, you know, to give Jared credit, in one of his his, his uh, podcast some time ago, he mentioned that and a few of these other ones. But this, this jump report lets you know, and you can track if, 
you know, a driver happens to be, not that this is prevalent, but if a driver pulls the, the engine ECM, right, those aren't always very easily detectable. But when you have an odometer jump report, you knew that that was pulled because you're getting a location report with an odometer report and they don't jive. It's like, well, wait a minute, how did you go 400 miles and be in the same GPS location? Yeah. Yeah, and, and kind of hand in hand with that, Tom, you see some overlap between the unassigned mileage report and the odometer right. jump report, but right. you'll also see on the odometer jump report a glitchy device. So right. sometimes I've seen, I'm sure you've seen this as well. Um, yep. 1,000 mile jumps in the odometer. So I mean that's totally impossible. Obviously, that okay. that represents a glitchy device that needs to be updated over the air or replaced. So I mean that odometer jump re report is useful for a lot of reasons. Uh, but that's also another one. Yeah. Um, and you kind of hinted towards some some of the tricky ELD uh, driver behaviors. Uh, that used yeah. to be a common one back in when, when the ELD mandate started is unplugging the device and driving. But I don't think that that's considered a tricky move anymore. And I don't think a lot of drivers try that anymore. Uh, what no, are you seeing? They do as much, but I've seen some of it, right? Um, yeah. I think some of the reports that people don't do enough detail on and one that is just counterproductive to, to uh, back office. I don't care if you're 200 trucks or you're 5,000 trucks, but this unidentified, um, unidentified driving report and the, and the process you have to follow with that. I don't think that people look at what they can do to prevent unidentified from happening. You know, it could be uh, people, you know, jockeying around with a, a live tractor that's used for line haul right in the yard and they never log in. They're, they're having trucks go back and forth to the OEM. They're uh, have a short haul driver. So a, a truck may be used for short haul during the daytime and then it's a line haul tractor in the evening. And now you have 30, 40 unidentifieds in a day, maybe even more that a driver has to deal with or the back office has to do something with. And I, I will tell you on a DOT audit, one of the major things that they look at as soon as they walk in the door or these remote audits is show me your unidentified driving report. Tom, for those who may not be familiar with the concept of unidentified driving, and I know there are several carriers who aren't. Right. Driver didn't log in, starts moving the, tr the truck, and there's no login and no authentication. So, so the device, because when you look at the components of an ELD that we should cover, you have a driver interface. Right. So you can have a mobile device, you can have a hardwired cable, but you also have an engine interface. So that engine interface is looking at speed sensors and it's understanding motion within the vehicle. So if there's not a login and an authentication of a login of a driver and that vehicle's moved, then the device has to capture that drive segment in the background and then present it to the next logged in driver. There's a lot of other detail that we could probably spend half of this meeting on, <laughs> but you know, you, you got to keep eight days worth, you, you know, driver has to have it accepted. And I think a, a, a question that people have all the time is, well, what happens if the driver doesn't accept it? And what happens if this doesn't happen? Well, enforcement's going to have a field day if the driver doesn't accept all these and keeps rejecting them. Because and that's a back office report that you should have to show if you have chronic drivers that continually reject them and you're trying to assign them to them, that could be a problem. 
Because I right. guess the concern, right, Tom, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you've got, you know, obviously the ELD mandate is intended to cut down on instances of log falsification. And if you've got right. situations where a vehicle's moving but no driver's logged in, that's one area where you can conceal hours of service violations and log falsification. Well, you can try, but if you've, if you've done a compliant device, all that should be captured and, and you're still required to keep six months of them at the back office. Now, most of the big suppliers that have, have taken the responsibility of additional reporting have a very sophisticated report at the back office that you, allows you to classify, allows you to look at them, allows you to know what drivers rejected them, right? It allows you to do quite a bit of minimized effort. So when we talk about drinking from the fire hose, that's one segment within the ELD that you can drink from a fire hose. <laughs> to me, if you're not looking at that report at least every other day, you're going to have a big problem at a DOT audit. You're not, you're not going to be able to dance through it. You're going to have a problem. I know Jared and I just in our own mock audits, and I'm sure you've seen it, Tom, too. You can go into a carrier and they'll have literally thousands of, of unidentified yeah. driving events that they haven't reconciled. And you're right. right. I mean, an auditor looking at that is going to say, right. you know, these are all log falsifications essentially or right. missing logs right and and if you get too many of them you know that very very really at roadside could be a 10 hour out of service yeah. because of because now you know you could have falsification of logs considered at roadside i haven't seen it that much but it will happen yeah here's here's another thing that i've been seeing more and more of um and you could you could add to this probably I just saw a violation of 395.32B, which is essentially the regulation that says that every time the driver logs into the ELD, they have to affirmatively accept or reject the unidentified driving time on the device. If the device itself doesn't force that affirmative acceptance or rejection, they could ignore it and move on with their day and then roadside picks up the device and immediately probably will see the unidentified time on the device that's neither been accepted or rejected and that, then there's a violation so um what do you recommend for motor carriers policing that like looking at exactly how the interface is presenting that yeah and, and i you know what it was is you know you if you look at the regulation language it says you need to present them to the driver right and they can do a not ready and they can do some other things, right? But the point is, because it's supposed to be looked at within that 24 hour period, right? Responsible care, responsible suppliers, what they're doing is they're pushing it at that driver every chance they can get. It becomes, it could become an annoyance and some people don't like that. But when, you, when you're facing the part, like you brought up, Jared, here's a regulation that you're gonna be in violation on because that clarity came out later than when the regulation came out as to how you're supposed to handle them, right? It's like the same thing on certification. If you don't certify your logs every day, right? And you forget about it and you get pulled over at roadside. Cause I remember this question years ago at ATA meetings, you better, you better have that thing certified because you need in the back office report. You need to have a, a back office report that tells you what drivers aren't certifying their logs, what drivers aren't accepting this, what drivers are rejecting edits, you know, those are the kind of things that manage the device with the driver and give the safety manager a better handle instead of sitting there pouring through data and then have waiting for an audit that, oh, I'm in trouble. Yeah. Hey, uh, Tom, Brendan's asking, what's a reasonable distance if there is one to expect an unidentified 
power unit move. Is there any, should you, should carriers put a, a distance uh, limitation on or, or do they have to reconcile, you know, the one minute? I, I've seen some reports that say, and, and this is what I would suggest. Suppliers should give them a report that says, I can look at unidentified in buckets. So, and I could do a drill down. So if I see these one mile unidentified, that's usually a yard move somebody didn't catch or something happened on a login or something like that. But when you see these, these 10, 20 X and up, you better look at them. And I, and, and we've had systems designed where you put the filters on there yeah. so that you can say, okay, I had 20 at 50 miles an hour. You better start looking at them. You're, you have a real problem, even 20 miles, even 10 miles right? You should be looking at those. Yeah. I think that's going to be a yard that's 10 miles long, unless you're in an oil field. Right. And I think that's probably going to be a theme throughout this show is that if you can't reconcile everything, if you can't manage all of the data, you need to prioritize, you need to figure out a way to prioritize that. And I I know at least on, on that topic specifically, Jared, when we go in and do audits, you know, we say, hey, you've got so many unidentified, uh, you know, hits here. You need to at least pick out the, the most egregious ones, get those reconciled and, and, and work your way down. Yeah. And, and anytime you're attacking ELD hours of service related issues, keep in mind, you have a six month document retention for hours of service. So it doesn't make sense to work on anything beyond six months or even close to six months. Because if this is a project that's going to take you months to complete, you want to start with more recent and work your way to six months. And eventually that you'll meet that document retention period. Um, Tom, real quick, I think we're kind of running out of time here, but I wanted to talk briefly about some vendor ELD vendor related issues. I mean, it's been up and down, very wavy compliance from the start of the ELD mandate and even before to now. Uh, What currently are you seeing issues related to to ELD vendors specifically with compliance with the ELD mandate? I think that, you know, you can talk about compliance, but I I think I'm seeing things where people are starting to take uh, too much liberties with, with these when I, when I talked about earlier about automatic duty status changes, and I think mm-hmm. that's a big problem. I think that's a problem that's up there. I think people need to stop doing those kinds of things and thinking, oh, just because it's here and I have a back office, you have to remember the driver's responsible in the truck for that log. You can't just do stuff. Those edits have to go to that driver. So I'm seeing some of that, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing I'm seeing is I don't think that people are giving the tools. The biggest thing is on how to manage those unidentified. And I think that the, there's some violation reports with motion, right, that people aren't catching the right way. Yep. Hey, yeah, Tom, kinda... we had one other question come in here from Ricky. She says, our, in our business, trucks are parked at night. Uh, by night shift facility operators, not fleet drivers. They move them to fill tanks and load trucks for transfer the following day. They're not using a login, which generates the unidentified trips daily. Should we have a login for the yard moves for the night shift operators? Yes, I would suggest. And that's another big suggestion. I probably gave five presentations on this stuff with Joe DiLorenzo over a, a couple year period. And one of the things is people keep forgetting that there's an exempt driver within the ELD mandate. And it was really initially designed for short haul 
and these yard jockeys and people that move vehicles around to do those. You know, some of them could be just for fueling, some of them for shop maintenance, even road tests. And people forget about that, right? And maintenance. So, you know, you do a brake job, you do a tune up, whatever, and you got to do a 20 mile road test to heat the truck up to make sure everything is okay. Yeah. You sign as an exempt driver, you eliminate all those unidentified, whether it's a, a fueling at night or whatever. Now, the, the pushback is, oh, I, you know, that login takes this much time. And that, well, guess what? How much time overall are you going to save in trying to manage unidentified somewhere within the company? That's lost productivity because yeah. if you're managing that too much, you're not paying attention to other safety issues. Yeah. So if the drivers don't do it themselves, it's going to have to be taken care of on the back end. So somebody's got to do right. it somewhere. Yeah. Right. Well, Tom, I think we're about out of time. Really appreciate you joining us here. Um, we're going to move on. We've talked a lot about um, electronic logging devices. As we said at the start, I think the next logical topic to talk about in the context of drinking from a fire hose are uh, kind of event recorders. Um, those types of devices, as we all know, can, uh, you know, we're talking video at this point. So, uh, you know, the amount of data that ELDs can generate just multiply that by by tens or, or hundreds because of we're, uh, the fact that we're talking about um, video data. So I want to introduce our next guest, which is Mike Maletra. He's the managing partner of Telematics and Video Services, LLC. Mike has over 45 years worth of experience in the transportation industry, and he's really done it all from owning trucking a trucking company and now working with carriers on data analytics and software. Um, Mike's been awarded three patents for truck component products and routinely works with some of the largest fleets in the country to help them leverage their data for profit maximization and process improvement. So um, welcome to the show, Mike. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for joining us. Very good. Hey, so tell us a little bit. I know you and I have had the opportunity to to talk quite a bit over the last couple of months, and I have an understanding of what uh, telematics and video services is. But but give the listeners a little sense of of what you're doing over at TVS. Sure. So, you know, there's uh, and you guys were talking about it. There's just a lot of data that's getting thrown at the wall, so to speak, and and motor carriers are drowning in it. And, you know, the nature of the business and in the talks that I give, you know, people outside of the industry that don't have trucking industry P&L experience don't realize that, you know, you're working with a 3% business over time. And so they don't have a lot of extra resources. And so you can't just keep throwing bodies at things, right? And so you have all these dashboards full of data and you got to act on it, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that's what we've been talking about. That's what, what you guys have been talking about with Thomas. You've got to act on that data to make yourself defensible. And so <clears throat> when I worked for, um, when I worked for Trimble and, and, you know, uh, Jamie and I used to go to different carriers, we would see uh, hundreds of thousands of videos that hadn't been looked at, you know, and, 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 and I just, you know, to me, that was like fingernails across a chalkboard because you don't know what's in there, right? And then having been on the stand and having had to deal with, you know, with the, the results of, of accidents and fatalities and, and lawsuits, um, you know, it just scared the crap out of me. And I wasn't even the trucking company owner. So, um, so that was kind of the emphasis uh, for us to put telematics and video services together 
Uh, we have some pretty unique ideas. We have some pretty unique technology that allows us to help carriers uh, act on the data without throwing people at it. And that's really what has to happen today. You know, and, and close that loop, complete the process so that um, you can tell a story if you end up in an adverse situation where, you know, we're dealing with it and we're getting better in here. Let me show you how I've improved my reputation. Right. Yeah. Mike, you talked about unreviewed videos and um, just for those who, who are watching that may not be familiar with these types of devices, you know, ELDs obviously are mandated by the regulations. Cameras are not. And so a lot of carriers uh, may not have cameras installed yet, even though we're seeing more and more carriers uh, move to that because of the benefits. But for those listening that may not be familiar with the technology, can you give us a sense, a broad sense of how these work and, and what problems sure. they're creating uh, in respect to uh, the the videos that aren't being reviewed? Sure. So, you know, when carriers put cameras in the truck, um, generally what we started out seeing is they use them as a crash cam, right? It, and, and, and that was a great improvement of, of, not having, uh, of not having a camera. But once you have that camera and it's in, and it's set to have certain thresholds where it records data um, and, it, and it records a video clip when certain thresholds are crossed, like harsh breaks above certain G-forces, um, harsh turns um, if the roll stability comes on, um, harsh acceleration if you accelerate too fast, things like that. A lot of them are accelerometer based. And um, because of that, there's been, um, there, early on there was a plethora of false events. And then, you know, we're starting to see AI being built into the cameras and it's helped. But um, even with the standard level of AI that we're seeing in cameras today, there's you know, you're probably still seeing an 80% uh, false detection or stuff that's not coachable, right? And so... Um, so those events are getting sent back to the carrier to deal with. And I imagine, you know, just working with carriers, we know some that have just outward facing, I suspect those are the carriers you're talking about that are, that have... Uh, install the devices mostly for crash type issues. But then we also see carriers that install inward facing that are pointing right at the driver and, and picking up on driver behaviors. Like if the driver picks up a cell phone or, or something like that. So that almost uh, probably doubles the amount of data that's coming into those carriers that have both inward and outward facing. So, uh, I mean, you know, they're coming into the carrier when they're triggered. Do you have a sense? Can you give us a sense for, how much, you know, how many of these events a, a carrier, a, you know, small to mid-sized carrier may be dealing with on a, on a daily or a weekly basis or something like that? Sure. So you're probably going to see um, two to three outward facing events in a week if you've got a, a well-managed fleet that has a high quality drivers. And that only goes up based on, you know, the quality of the fleet and then even the quality of your equipment. And then um, inward facing cameras generally doubles that. And um, it's, it's interesting how, um, you know, inward facing cameras, they just pick up on things. And again, every time you get one of those events, because all of this stuff is discoverable, you need to address them. Because if you don't, and you don't know what you have, when you get on the stand, you're going to learn what you have on this driver, right? And it might not be in the best 
light. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the rub, right? Again, it's the same issue yeah. we discussed early on where you don't want to be have to be in front of a jury explaining why driver John Doe, you have video footage of him on your system picking up his cell phone routinely while he's driving, and then he gets involved in a fatality accident where he was on his cell phone. You're going to have to explain to the jury why you didn't do anything when, when your system was clearly alerting you to that fact. I, I can't imagine a much worse situation to be in than that one. Right, those are, those are just absolute accelerants in a nuclear award. I mean, you have no defense at that point. So, you know, our perspective is you got to watch every video and then you have to act on the ones and that, that meet thresholds. And then again, what we see is as, as you gain experience with those types of systems where you're getting these harsh events, then you're, you have to change with that too, because as you learn, as your drivers learn, uh, you have to you have to change with that. And, you know, that's part of the tooling that we, we provide. Is this another one of those situations we talked about it with Tom? I think you were listening in. Um, you know, for, for some of the ELD reports, we talked about prioritizing videos. I mean, what's your advice to a, a small carrier that may only have one safety director or a small team of safety managers where it's it may not be feasible for them to uh, you know, look at every video when they're also, when you're considering everything else that they're doing, do you have some kind of a prioritization that you look at? Is that even feasible for camera footage? Again, I think you really want to evaluate that before you get into cameras because everything you capture is discoverable and you have to address it if it's there, because like I said before, if you don't address it, you will address it on the stand and you don't want to be in that position. So you've got to be very careful about being able to address those harsh events and address them all. And, and again, that's where we help um, in making sure that you're defensible in, yeah. and, then I mean, be consistent you? and be oh, consistent sorry. about it. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask you, I've, I've seen a couple of cases where it, audio recording on the inward facing camera has become really important. I mean, have you seen a lot of that and kind of what's your advice on uh, carriers that are wrestling whether or not to record audio when an event threshold is, is triggered? Obviously, a crash would be one of those situations. So you'd then pull back the rest of the video and potentially audio uh, so you could use that. Well, what are your thoughts on audio? Again, um, that's a decision that has to be carefully considered by you and your counsel and insurance company. Um, I'm of the opinion that less data sometimes is better. So, you know, I think that. I I know just from the work we've done in the past, Jared, working with carriers and and considering that issue of audio recording and whether we want to turn that functionality on. I know there are other issues besides the highway accident situation that you have to worry about with audio recording with, uh, you know, privacy related laws and, and picking up on conversations with people who haven't consented to you recording their conversation, whether that be a passenger in the vehicle or law enforcement during a roadside inspection. Yeah, one of the things, the overarching kind of issue that you have to address and think about at the management level is how is audio actually going to help us in the context of litigation? I mean, in my opinion, I can only see a lot of areas where audio could hurt you. Uh, Video, obviously, there's a lot of ways where, you know, video could certainly help you. You know, the driver's checking his mirrors. You know, he was in his lane. Um, 
the the other vehicle completely crossed over the the double yellow into his lane. I mean, there's a lot of ways where video can help you, but audio maybe not so much. Um, right. And, and I had one other one other question for you here. How important when when a carrier is considering rolling out a telematics program, particularly video, um, how important is it to educate drivers and tell the drivers exactly what is going to be recorded and what's going to be stored? Because I think a lot of drivers feel like, you know, this device is going to be watching every move that they make and I have no privacy anymore. So like how important is education in your opinion? I think it's, it's extremely important because when you do this right, um, they become your allies. And, you know, the other part that we haven't talked about with this is um, you not only use this to help coach behavior, but you also use it to recognize good behavior and, you, and then turn around and use that for improving your driver training processes with your own homegrown videos, right? And, and there's nothing more germane than that in your safety program. And that's what I love about videos because you can actually, you don't have a better tool for building a company safety culture and improving it than, a, than, than your own videos. And so when you see people do things right, you can use those ex as examples for uh, people following the driving regulations and, and handbook regulations that, that you have and supporting that. And again, that's all fodder for building your reputation on the stand should it ever come to that. Hey, Mike, we had a question come in um, asking, what about when a system that has the ability to provide the videos, but you have elected not to turn the setting on? So I guess an example would be you've got cameras that are capable of recording both inward and outward, and maybe you only have the outward facing functionality turned on. Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, from, from my perspective, again, uh, those are fleet choices that need to be made. And some of it's, it's what type of operation do I have? Um, I like the inward facing ones. I like using inward facing ones when you can use them as an additional level of coaching. In other words, if you have somebody that consistently um, has harsh brakes, you know, maybe there's something else going on. And so on the, on the front end, when you start implementing this, you let everybody know, hey, you know, here's the thresholds, guys. And, you know, if we, if we continue to see this with you at some point, we're going to turn that camera on because we think something's going on. And, and, you know, to protect you and protect the public, we need to know this, right? And yeah. so if you're, you're very, uh, you know, very supportive uh, and get their support with this, and drivers are reasonable. I mean, I've drove million, or hundreds of thousands of miles in a truck myself. And all you got to do is just make the case. Nobody wants an accident. Nobody wants to, um, you know, deal with that. And so they all know when they make mistakes. Yeah. And, and it's, it's easy just to coach them appropriately and you can modify their behavior. Yeah, I think that's right. And, I, you know, thinking about it on the legal side of things, I don't know that I've given it a ton of thought. I'd be interested in your thoughts, Jared, on the additional exposure created by not turning on functionality that is that the device is capable of. So if we only flip on outward facing, do we have some heightened exposure in the context of highway accident litigation? If we could have turned it on on the inward facing and we didn't, um, you know, so what are your thoughts on that, Jerry? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that it's worth sitting down and, and putting some policies in place on how we're going to be using these cameras, when we're going to be using these cameras, if there's exceptions to that rule. And of course, when you put a policy in place, the policy isn't worth anything if you're not following it. It's, it's almost worse to have a policy that you don't follow. So um, I, I recently worked with a carrier at, that was collecting data. They didn't know where to start. And I said, let's get Let's get some different heads together. Let's get risk, let's get legal, let's get safety. Let's look at the data that's being collected, have a realistic uh, come to Jesus conversation about how can we work with this data? Can we, should we pare it down? That's where you kind of start is get those different heads together and then hammer out a policy on how they're going to be used and follow that policy. Mike, please chime in here. <laughs> sure, it, and, and I agree. Number one, if you have a policy, you need to follow it. You need to demonstrate that you have been following it consistently with no exceptions, right? That, that's just critical. And so, um, and, and again, just because you have an inward-facing camera doesn't mean that that video in every instance was germane to the accident, right? And so, uh, again, yeah. I think there's enough sophistication out there. There's enough data analysis out there available that you can pretty much determine when it's warranted and when it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And Tyler said, you know, he could easily see a judge saying, well, you had the capability to, to have that functionality and you decided not to turn it on. And I, you know, I see that point. And so I think what we're trying to avoid is being the ostrich with its head in the sand and not taking action that we could have taken to help improve the safety of our fleets. But at the same time, I see the other side of things too, right? You know, because the other side of the coin is I turn that on and I don't have the the capability or, or the manpower to be able to manage all of that data. The same thing goes for the ELD reports that we talked about or the telematics, harsh breaking, that type of stuff where, you know, we've either got to turn that stuff off because we're not doing anything with it or we turn it on and we just can't manage it. I think you have to find a happy medium somewhere in there uh, and be able, if you're going to turn it on, you got to be able to manage it, even if it's just prioritizing the issues and dealing with the most egregious situations. I think that's going to give you the best shot if you end up in litigation and, and having to explain that to a judge or jury that at least you've done something. You haven't just put your head in the sand and, and ignored the issue altogether. I agree. And, I, you know, one of the other factors to consider is, um, you know, in sleeper team operations, especially, you may have some privacy issues with some of the cameras that, you know, look directly back and into the sleeper, right? So, yeah. Uh, so there's, yeah, there's just, it's not a simple subject. Well, Mike, I regret to say we're running out of time here. Appreciate you joining us. It was very insightful. L let everybody know where they can find more information about TVS in case they're interested. Yeah, we, we, uh, we just overhauled our website, uh, tvsanalytics.com. Uh, we've got a, got a pretty good uh, new, fresh look on our website. So thanks. Excellent. Hey, we'll bring Tom back up here. Uh, you know, just one last time here, we wanted to say thanks to both of you. It's been a great conversation, very important topic that a lot of carriers uh, have questions about. We're something we deal with on, on pretty much a weekly basis. Uh, just want to see if any, either of you have any closing thoughts before we wrap things up here. Yeah. Um, you know, we mentioned about policies, you know, with the, with the video and other things like that. I think when you get into the ELD and regulatory, there's three core places where policies are there. But like Jared said, if you're going to put a policy together, better have it. And, and what I've seen, and even FMCSA recognizes it, is 
have a policy on what you're going to do if a driver keeps continually rejecting edits. Have a policy on personal conveyance and understand what it is because the ELD can't restrict personal conveyance, not unless you're in Canada. Okay. So you, so you need to do that. And I think somebody asked a question about what, what's a limit on personal conveyance. I'm not going to touch that one because some people have a lot of owner operators in their fleet, right? But remember it's 75 kilometers in Canada. Another policy you should think about is rejecting these unidentified and not doing anything with them. I think those three things are key that you should look at a policy, communicate it to driver, explain why you have it and, and what I have, what the effect is, because it, as you guys were saying earlier, the, the less you tell a driver, the more problem you're going to have. So if you put a training program and a, and a detailed explanation on anything like this, including LDs, you're going to be better off. Thanks for that, Tom. Anything to wrap things up, Mike? If you're gathering the data and it's actionable, you need to act on it because if you don't, it's going to be acted on when you it's, don't want it acted on. Yeah, it's yes. going to be hell to pay. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, guys. Again, thanks so much for, for joining us. Uh, Jared, you want to wrap things up here? Yeah, sure. So one other point real quick on what Tom was just talking about. Um, he's talking about putting policies in place, robust policies that say, if if you violate this policy, this is what's going to happen. In those situations, I definitely like to, to refer back to the progressive discipline policy that I really hope is in your driver handbook. So that's kind of your catch-all uh, discipline policy. So if you violate the ELD policy, if you violate the camera policy, uh, you know, you'll be uh, subject to the progressive discipline policy found in the driver handbook. So I just wanted to toss that in there. Um, and kind of with all of this in mind, if you're a carrier that has telematics, obviously you probably have an ELD with very limited exception. Where do you go? Uh, if you want to start working with this data, figuring out what you have, like I said before, I, I think it's important to get different um, different hats into the room. So get your legal, get your risk, get your safety. Look at the data that you're that you're gathering. Um, kind of audit that. Uh, determine if you need to pare down the data. And as far as what you know, we typically do, we'll do an ELD and hours of service focused audit for motor carriers that really want to dig into their ELD compliance. And of course, we can also look at all different types of technology that uh, interacts with the commercial motor vehicle, which is just getting larger and larger at this point. So um, those, are the, those are the main areas that we typically try to act upon the telematics data, but uh, feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions about those types of actions. Yeah, and be sure to check out our website, trucksafeconsulting.com. We have a bunch of free uh, resources available for carriers on, on all kinds of regulatory topics, free videos, free uh, documents. So be sure to check that out. Hey, thanks for watching. Uh, make sure you tune in next month. We're going to have a show devoted to the war on independent contractor status. We're going to have Wendy Greenland from Open Force and Doug Graw from the Graw Group. So it's going to be a great show next month. So we hope you join us. Uh, appreciate you joining us today, and we will... I uh, hope to see you soon. See you, everyone. Thanks. <laughs>